of science. And uh, so the only other, so I, I, I am digressing and dragging this podcast out longer than it should be, but the only other uh, celebrity who had an airway um, death was George Washington, wasn't it? Yes. So that he well, George... had epiglottitis or some form of upper airway infection, which was treated with um, bloodletting. Yeah, so he, <laughs> so he's, he, he almost should be the poster boy for tracheostomies because he died because they wouldn't do a tracheostomy. That's right. Welcome to episode 33 of the Ops and Guy Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this week I have a new guest on the show, uh, Dr. James Anderson, who um, has kindly uh, agreed to um, do an interview um, on a topic which is uh, an area of his um, expertise, um, the management of uh, tracheostomy and laryngectomy patients. So um, thanks for coming on the show, James. No worries, happy to be here. Um, so first thing I was going to ask is um, maybe be really interesting for uh, listeners and, and for myself if you could tell me a little bit about your background and how, how did you get interested in this topic? Uh, well, before I um, saw the light and uh, jumped over the drapes to anaesthesia, I was um, on the surgical side of things. I did a year of um, ear, nose and throat surgical training. Um, and when I came to anaesthesia, I was just surprised that um, the understanding and experience of surgical airways wasn't as high as I kind of thought for the airway experts um, of the hospitals. Yep. And um, so I've been involved in a few projects, uh, mainly at Fiona Stanley, um, since then to try and improve that. And uh, and you've also helped author a um, article for the Blue Book, the famous Blue Book that comes from our college. Is that right? Yeah. So um, this year we uh, wrote an article um, for the Blue Book, looking at uh, management of uh, a patient with a tracheostomy and crisis management of a patient with a tracheostomy, and also explaining a little bit about what we've learnt in the um, sort of simulations that we've run. Um, with uh, multidisciplinary teams uh, responding to a to a tracky crisis. All right, so that's um, so I think we'll get into a little bit of that as well. But um, so some people who are listening to this might be going, well, what's this got to do with ONG? Well, the truth is um, that uh, whichever hospital you work in, you do occasionally come across patients uh, like this who have tracheostomies, and um, because it is relatively unfamiliar for those of us who aren't uh, ENT surgeons. Um, I think it's really useful for us to, to, to learn this stuff, um, James, so that when we do have to look after someone with these um, uh, airways, we know what to do. Um, a, just sort of in the elective situation, if they're you know, coming for non, non-ENT non surgery, which um, uh, can happen, uh, or if, if, uh, if there is some sort of crisis, usually they do call for someone like an anaesthetist who is usually the closest person around with some sort of airway experience, and so... It's good for us to get up to speed, and I'm really looking forward to getting a bit more knowledge in this area. I must admit, um, I don't feel like I know as much as I should. Um, a couple, well, I had a couple of bad experiences when I was a trainee many years ago, working in ICU in both Queensland and back in New Zealand. Uh, you know, we had one um, tracheostomy in a, in a patient who had a traumatic brain injury that came out in the middle of the night uh, in Queensland, and he didn't do very well. Um, and and then we had a tracheostomy, which actually was a sort of um, modified airway, which someone had put together in the, um, uh, because the patient was so obese, they didn't use a standard trachea, and, uh, and it came, the modification came apart and it disappeared into her neck. Um, so that was very, really, um, and she was one of the bluest patients I've ever seen in my life. Um, so that was a bit scary. Um, yeah. But that one turned out all right. Well, you raised a few interesting points there. Um, so 
We know that the obese patients are the most common um, patients who have problems with the tracheostomy. It's about four times higher than uh, yep. the average patient. And a lot of the complications do happen in ICU and so, or critical care environments. So about 50% of all airway disasters uh, in critical care are due to tracheostomies, even though tracheostomies only make up a small portion of the airways that patients have in critical care environments. And as you mentioned, you know, anaesthetists always get dragged into um, uh, an airway disaster. And you know, every, uh, every coroner's report of a tracheostomy death will involve um, an anaesthetist being involved at some point. So it's important we know uh, <coughs> uh, what to do in that role. Yep. And I've actually just suddenly remembered, it's just this, is, this whole um, discussion has brought back to my mind another um, critical uh, trachea incident that I had in uh, Queensland where just after placing a trachea in, a, in a, this frail elderly patient, um, the cuff started leaking. So uh, it had only been in there for about five hours. And then the, the uh, ENT surgeon came around to, and to change it, and I was really surprised that he didn't put a um, exchange catheter down. He just pulled the trachea out and tried to shove another one in. This was on the ICU. Right. <laughs> surprise, surprise, <laughs> he couldn't find the hole. And uh, she went blue, and we had to tube her from above. So, yeah, that was pretty scary as well. So I only just remember that while we were talking. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty scary. I get really nervous around them. And look, it's interesting... Um that story you just described about uh, the tube change um, of a very fresh trachea. So a five-hour-old trachea is a very different kettle of fish to something that might be a month old. Yep. So obviously in that uh, scenario, uh, the, the um, surgeon tried to change the trachea as he may well have done in his usual practice in more mature tracheas, um, where you can take a tube out and there's a nice mature tract that you can see and you can take your time and change the tube. But obviously in a fresh one, you've got all those layers of tissue that are uh, were lined up at one point in time when the tract was put in. But once the patient's moved and the tube's out, it's like the layers of the uh, Swiss cheese don't yes. align anymore. Yes, so and, we um, were all very surprised because he was quite a senior... Uh, or he was an experienced ENT surgeon, so we didn't realise that he was just going to pull it out like that, but he did. Um, so anyway, uh, so I thought what the most useful way we could sort of frame this discussion, James, if it's okay, is maybe we can... Um, uh, talk about the perioperative management. Say, for example, we have a patient who has a long-term tracheostomy for some reason. Uh, they've had some pathology, and this this has um, been managed with a long-term tracheostomy, and they get referred to uh, us for some um, you know, major gynae surgery. And so, um, I know in the past we have occasionally um, had in our, in our hospital had patients referred for gynae surgery with tracheas in, and this, this has caused a bit of um, angst amongst the staff because there's no sort of on-site. ENT service at our hospital. Um, so, so maybe we should go through the sort of the perioperative uh, management of someone like that. Um, yeah, sure. So, I guess the big picture things to think about first of all is whether um, what system the hospital has in place for ensuring that tracheostomy patients can be cared for safely. Yep. And one of the things we'll keep coming back to in this talk is um, uh, some of the resources available from the National Tracheostomy Safety Project in the UK, which yep. sort of informs a, a system of care uh, for you know safety equipment to have by the bedside, safety algorithms to have at the bedhead, um, and uh, you know training for staff. And that's something we've certainly tried to implement um, at my hospital, and I know a number of other hospitals um, around uh, around WA and also Australia. Yep. So having that kind of system in place means that you know that the patient can be cared for well if there is some kind of unexpected disaster. But more specifically um, with the care um, intraoperatively or perioperatively, the kind of information you want to know is why does the patient have a tracheostomy? Like what yep. was the indication for it? 
And that then sort of feeds on, uh, you know, follows on to let you understand what the patient's airway is like. So do they have a patent upper airway? So if there was a problem with the tracheostomy, um, could you intubate the patient from above? Would you be able to uh, pass a tube uh, transorally through the glottis um, and secure an airway? Or do they have some horrible you know, tumour or anatomical abnormality which um, yep. will make that difficult? Um, and then knowing when the tracheostomy was inserted is important, as we mentioned earlier. So once a <coughs> tube has been in for more than 10 days, uh, it tends to be a more mature tract that will sort of hold itself together for the time taken to exchange a tube. So in the, in the case of a dislodged tracheostomy or a change of a tube, um, there's a bit more of a safety margin there. Yep. And then you want to know about the equipment. So, you know, what kind of tube do they have? Um, you know, what size is it? What brand is it? Um, is there a cuff? Is there a fenestration? And, um, you know, what, uh, in a can is there an inner cannula present? Um, and then, you know, other questions like, you know, are they ventilator dependent, maybe in a brain injured patient or um, other factors like that. And can I just delve into that a little bit more detail for those of us who um, are unfamiliar with the reasons why you might have those different variations? So, for, so for example, why would a patient have a fenestration in their tracheostomy tube? What's, what's the advantage of having a fenestrated versus unfenestrated? Sure. So a fenestrated tracheostomy tube is where you have a, some holes in the tracheostomy tube yep. um, sort of above the cuff area, if there is a cuff present, uh, which allows the patient to occlude the end of their tracheostomy tube and then air is directed up through the glottis so they okay. can speak. So it can sort of facilitate speech. Yep. Um, so they may breathe through the tracheostomy predominantly, but when they want to speak, they can occlude their tube and breathe okay. out through their glottis. Now, it's infrequent to see those kind of tubes in an inpatient in a fresh tracheostomy because it's kind of a thing that patients may use in the community. And you can see how that having a fenestration can complicate the idea of the tracheostomy a little bit where there can be you know, granulation tissue grow into there. You have a situation where you then don't have a, a solid tube that you can um, create a seal with, even with a cuff. Yep. Um, however, <clears throat> there's ways around it. Uh, even with a cuffed fenestrated tube, you could put an inner cannula in that does not have a fenestration and you may get a reasonable seal in that right. situation. Yeah, so I guess if they're breathing spontaneously, there's no problems really with a fenestration, mm. but when we try and ventilate someone through a fenestrated tracheal, then obviously um, that becomes more difficult. And, like, and that's also more difficult if we don't have a cuff. So um, the challenge for us in anaesthesia is that we want to be able to make sure that we can protect an airway with a, a sealed airway, with some kind of... That's uh, where we can administer positive pressure ventilation. And um, with an uncuffed tracheostomy tube or a uh, cuff, uh, uh, tracheostomy tube with a fenestration in it, um, it's difficult to deliver positive pressure ventilation. Yep. And so uh, do many people with long-term um, tracheostomies in the community have cuffs on their, on their tracheostomy? Because I imagine that's just been an extra thing that's not really needed. Correct, yeah. So it'd be only people who are ventilator dependent. And so there are patients right. around who um, require um, ventilatory support. Yeah, so yep. maybe... Um, uh, motor neuron diseases and things like that? Yeah, or, or um, spinal um, injuries yep. um, uh, where people need support uh, to ventilate. Yep. Um, so yeah, it would be uncommon. Okay, that's good. So, um, so the, yeah, do you want to carry on and tell us how, you know, when they, uh, when they come for sort of pre-anesthetic planning... Um, uh, what sort of things should we, you know, we've, say we've got all that information then, what, how should we plan what to do well, if they have, say, fenestrations or, or don't have a cuff, etc.? 
Yeah, so most uh, yeah, community patients will have an uncuffed tracheostomy tube, um, which, you know, I guess you could, if you're in a situation where you would uh, be able to allow a spontaneous ventilation uh, technique, um, I'm guessing like an endoscopy in a sedation kind of setting. Sure, like colonoscopy you, or something. Yeah, yeah, you may um, uh, just be happy to leave them with a uncuffed tube, but with a, a plan to change to a cuffed uh, uh, device in a, in a bit of a crisis if that arose. Yep. Um, but otherwise, really, uh, <coughs> we need to have the ability to have a cuffed tube from the start. Um, and that involves a tracheostomy change. Yep. <coughs> so how do we do that? So as you kind of uh, mentioned earlier, tracheostomy changes um, can be done in different ways. Um, what I tend to... Uh, the technique I describe to anaesthetists who are unfamiliar with tracheostomy changes is one using an airway exchange catheter. Yep. And again, there's good videos of this on the um, tracheostomy.org.uk website. Yep. Um, but it essentially involves making sure you have all your equipment and monitoring available and taking a conservative approach to it. Um, on the ward, the ENT surgeons would be quite happy to do um, uh, trachea change in a bit more of a relaxed fashion. Um, but obviously they are doing this you know, every, day, every, uh, every week um, and they may be quite a lot more familiar with the anatomy of their particular patient. So uh, it involves having a monitored patient, an oxygenated patient, having um, an appropriately sized tracheostomy tube. And if you're going to put a cuffed tube into a, um, a hole that uh, contains an uncuffed tube, you might find that the diameter of the hole perfectly matches that uncuffed tube. Yep. So if you get the same size, uh, you know, another size 8 tube, but with a cuff on it, that extra diameter of the cuff just might mean that it's a bit tight. Yep. So you may have to go a size down um, with your cuffed tube. Um, so having a variety of tube sizes available, um, having an airway exchange catheter available, um, suction catheters, uh, good lighting, um, and uh, you know one of the things that NAP4, um, that NAP4 Airway Audit in the UK mentioned is the importance of having um, capnography available, which we always do have in, uh, in theatre, uh, but also the access to a fire scope to confirm locations of tubes um, if there's any uncertainty at any point. Okay, so should we? So people like ourselves who are say not ENT surgeons, not familiar with doing this, should we, we be really be doing this in theatre? Yeah, um, I, I think that's not an unreasonable thing to which do. Where we have all that equipment. Yeah, have all your equipment available, set up, <laughs> have the patient monitored, pre-oxygenate the patient. Um, you can do things like add a bit of cofenalcaine um, yep. uh, down the tracheostomy so they tolerate the airway exchange catheter better. Yep. Um, so I guess to talk talk through the exact process. Um, much like you know, you plan to do any kind of um, airway intervention, you have your team and monitoring in place. Um, I'd uh, pre-oxygenate the patient, have them monitored, put some cofenalcaine down the tracheostomy tube, just so that, you know when you put a airway exchange catheter in, they don't cough and uh, buck as much. Uh, um, sorry, which airway exchange catheter do you, is? Um, does it matter or is the one that fits? So okay. it's yeah, worth having a look at um, what size airway exchange catheters you have in your institution. Um, and whether it fits down the tube that you're yep. trying to exchange over, because that's that would be. Um, so I guess most places have things like an Andrew catheter, or the the other thing that comes to mind is the Cook Exchange catheter, yep. which is a bit more flexible. Yeah, I think the uh, flexible one's probably nicer. Yeah, so less likely to cause trauma, I guess. So yep. so the Cook Exchange catheter is you, was that what you would use? Or? Correct. Yeah. Yep. And that they come in two different sizes. Well, they may come in more than two different sizes. I'm aware yep. of two sizes that we have in our institution. So you just got to check whether um, they'll fit down uh, the tube that you're exchanging. Um, 
if there's an inner cannula, take that out um, before you put uh, the air exchange catheter down because that will improve the diameter of the, uh, of the tracheostomy tube. Um, you may want to suction the uh, tracheostomy tube to clear any secretions that are present. Uh, then you can pass your airway exchange catheter um, just beyond the length of the tracheostomy tube. Yep. And um, you know, there's no point tickling the patient's carina um, unnecessarily. No. Um, <coughs> and then you remove the existing tracheostomy tube over the airway exchange catheter and railroad your new tube over. Now, it's important to think about the curvature of the tracheostomy tubes because you know it is a bit of a curved yes, track. Yes, it is a bit more curved, isn't it? And you don't want to just um, push it posteriorly you've got to have a slight curved action and this is where having really good lighting and good positioning of, uh, of an extended neck is important so you can actually see down the hole of the stoma and get an idea for where um, uh, where the tube needs to go um, if for some reason you know usually you want to use a tracheostomy tube as your replacement tube because it's the right length it's the right kind of design um, in some circumstances, maybe even in a, in a crisis, you might just grab what's available, such as an endotracheal tube. Yep. And the thing to keep in mind here is that um, you know we're used to seeing endotracheal tubes in at 22 centimetres or something like that. <laughs> you don't want to enter 22 centimetres into it's the neck. It's one lung ventilation if you go through a uh, stoma. That's right, yeah. So you just want to get it in past the cuff um, and uh, hopefully that'll keep it above the carina. And then obviously uh, continue up to the monitoring and confirming CO2 um, once the airway exchange catheter has been removed and check that the patient's okay. And then, uh, so say for example, let's just stick with our hypothetical case with having someone who's having a, uh, a laparotomy for um, a gynae oncology cancer or something. Mm. So, we do the, so we've done that, we, we, we uh, give them an anaesthetic through this new cuff tube. What should we be doing at the end? You know, we're, we're, we're um, waking them up, putting them in recovery. Yeah, well, actually, just, we, there's, there's another option yeah. we haven't explored, of course. Yeah. Um, if the patient has a patent upper airway, the other option you could have, of course, is to um, you know, intubate them from above, sure. um, remove the tracheostomy tube and intubate them from above. But, of course, uh, whatever the indication was for their tracheostomy, they probably will need it again postoperatively. So someone's sure. going to have to put it back in at some point. And um, tracheostomy stomas close over really quickly. Um, so it's not uh, advisable to leave nothing in the stoma for right. um, an extended period of time. So, th so then presumably if you did for some reason uh, put an oral intracranial tube and you would still need something that sits in the stoma to keep it open? Yeah, uh, you, can get stoma, you can get stoma buttons and things like so that. It sounds like it'd be more sensible to, especially a long case, um, that could take a while. Um, to, yeah, it would be more sensible to exchange um, the, the tracheostomy tube, especially because, as you say, when we're then moving to the recovery phase, if we put a cuffed tracheostomy tube in, the easy thing to do at the end of the case is just to wake the patient up and take the cuff down. And then you can leave that cuff tube in until the patient's well and truly recovered um, yeah. and you're happy that everything is good and you can change the tube electively in a non-urgent you know, non fashion so like in the end hours end. later or, or days, you know, later, even days or? later even. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it sounds good. So once you have the a cuffed um, tracheostomy tube, and there's no real hurry for you to take that out, and you can use, you know, certainly uh, leave that in for an um, extended period of time. Sounds yeah, good. Yeah, but you should deflate the cuff. Yep. That's great. So I think the other thing we're going to talk about now was, uh, um, I was keen to get your, um, uh, to run through, um, if you get called to a crisis, uh, and, and how to manage that. Do you want, yeah. is that the next thing on the list? Yeah, that's a, that's a reasonable yep. thing to do. So um, <clears throat> we know that tracheostomy crises are um, way overrepresented in the airway disasters. Um, and I think it's like 
one in 10 of all airway litigation cases uh, related to a tracheostomy or laryngectomy, despite them making up such a small portion of the um, uh, airway disasters. And I said 50% of all the ICU airway crises yep. are tracheo-related. So it's important to be prepared for them and um, have a high index of suspicion. Um, so that's about having all those systems that I mentioned start um, in place to ensure the safety of uh, tracheostomy patients. The first um, step when you um, uh, see a patient with a tracheostomy who's having uh, problems is sort of obviously doing your standard uh, look, listen, feel, see if the patient's breathing. And um, there's a great algorithm, again, on the tracheostomy.org.uk website, which we have at the bedhead of all of our tracheostomy patients, yep. which will walk you through the steps to do. And whilst the algorithm does look a little busy, it's um, you know a series of quite simple and straightforward steps. So obviously, if the patient um, uh, is, uh, is breathing, then you apply oxygen to the neck and the mouth, because if the yep. tracheostomy tube's been dislodged, um, a little bit, then they might actually be breathing through their through their mouth and nose. So you want to provide oxygen via both routes while you're working out what's going on. Okay, that's good advice. Yep. And then, um, you know, around this time as well, you want to use a capnography if you have it available, um, or otherwise a um, sort of a Mapleton C circuit um, to get an idea of whether there's um, you know air being moved in and out of the tracheostomy. And that can give you more information because we have to remember that tracheostomy patients also have anaphylaxis, bronchospasm, all these other problems that can make a um, person look like they're having trouble with their breathing. If um, uh, you know, you've uh, ascertained that there is a problem with their uh, tracheostomy, then's the time to remove the inner cannula. So inner cannulas are an important safety um, uh, innovation with tracheostomies over the years because they kind of act as the sacrificial anode. So if the tracheostomy gets blocked, and you have an inner cannula in, you can whip out the inner cannula and then you have a patent airway again. You right. still got so the... usually like secretions or some other um, tissue or something, right? Yeah. And, it's usually, um, and those secretions cause. can become rock hard as well over yep. time. Um, if somebody has a buildup of secretions over time, it kind of dries out like concrete and it can be very difficult to um, clean without putting a new inner cannula in if, if the patient hasn't been um, having adequate tracky care. <clears throat> so yeah, inner cannula out first is the first easy step to do and also if they have any valves on the front of the tracheostomy tube or humidification devices those are also things to remove at this point all of these things very easy to do anyone can do it yep. um, and they're obviously reversible interventions the next step is to get a suction catheter and the suction catheter you're not using it just to suck out the airway you're also using it as a sound so you're trying to pass the suction catheter beyond what you think the length of the tracheostomy tube is so if you can pass the tracheostomy the suction catheter beyond the length of the tracheostomy tube then the tracheostomy tube must be inside another tube which you hope is the trachea and not the esophagus sure. um, so if you are able to pass the suction catheter then you can be reassured that the tracheostomy tube is in the trachea and you can start sort of uh, reassessing the patient to see if there's some other problem going on that you haven't uh, and presumably you should be seeing um, CO2 on the capnography if this is a... Absolutely. If you're able to easily pass a suction catheter. Yeah, yeah. So you may have seen a, you know, a funny CO2 trace and be worried that there was some problem with the tracheostomy and, and by passing the suction catheter you've confirmed. Um, this is also the point where um, having a fibre optic scope is very handy as well. You can sure. have a look down, confirm that you can see Carina and you can then reassure yourself that it's not a tracheostomy problem, it's a... You know, another uh, bronchospasm, asthma, or some other issue. Something yep. else that you need to deal with, yeah. 
Now, if you can't pass a suction catheter, what you've demonstrated is that the tracheostomy tube is no longer in a tube, yep. um, or it's uh, you know partially dislodged at least. So the next step is to deflate the cuff. Now, if it, if the cuff is present, the idea here is that the cuff might be so if, if the tube's half in, half out, the cuff might be partially obstructing the upper airway. Yep. Um, so deflating the cuff might restore an upper airway for the patient. So deflate that and see if it helps. Now, the algorithm then quickly moves to um, if the patient's not getting better after those you know, small interventions, you've pretty much demonstrated that the tracheostomy tube is not in the trachea, and it's not providing an airway, and therefore it's an impediment to providing airway and should be removed. And when we run these simulations with um, uh, you know, junior medical staff, nursing staff, and very senior um, critical care doctors, people get very nervous at this point. But the algorithm's been thought through um, reasonably well, and you've demonstrated that the tracheostomy tube at this point isn't providing an airway. Um, and therefore should be removed. And we don't want patients dying with a tracheostomy in that's obstructing their airway. Right, that makes sense. So um, that's the point of removing the tracheostomy, but also becomes obviously then the challenge then to re-secure an airway. Yep. The emphasis on the algorithm is to use techniques that you're familiar with. So, um, you know, bag masking orally initially um, uh, with somebody, you know, putting a gloved hand over the uh, tracheal stoma to enable that to work, you know, using an LMA, if they need intubation, intubating it orally, because these are techniques that we're practiced at and we do, you know, um, frequently. Um, whereas accessing the airway from the front of the neck is a less uh, practice skill. Um, so that's kind of on the algorithm as a list as like a secondary, um, secondary uh, technique. But obviously, in the patients who have, you know, an unintubatable upper airway, yep. you know, so the, the laryngectomies and that sort of thing. Well, we'll get to laryngectomies in a tick, but yeah, mm -hmm. but in a um, you know, someone's got an awful head and neck cancer where, you know, you just had a flap put in, you know, a couple of days ago or, um, you know, you know that the reason they have a tracheostomy is because they have a non-patent um, upper airway. Yep. Um, you don't want to persevere with your oral, uh, oral attempts and you do need to move to the front of the neck to secure the airway. Sounds good. And so um, I'm just going to go back. That was really good... Um Covering the algorithm, so I'm going back to, uh, to the point that you made right at the start, which was that these patients um, who have these known trachies in the hospital have, you said, yeah, they have a box and um, have the algorithm at the head of the bed. So I don't think we mentioned that, have we? So, so any patient who comes into hospital, what should we be doing? Uh, we should be having these um, laminated cards and these boxes with equipment uh, that follow them around the hospital. Is that? Um, That's correct. So there's yeah. there's a. Um, <coughs> We, um, Fiona Stanley, we have a um, tracheostomy box that um, is meant to follow patients around as soon as they come into the hospital until they leave the hospital. Um, it has a series of um, uh, emergency equipment that uh, follows them around, but also includes a bedhead algorithm um, for whether they have a tracheostomy or a uh, laryngectomy and an information um, uh, bedhead sign that explains when the tracheostomy was inserted. Um, you know, do they have any other interesting features, what size tube is there and, and who uh, the um, specialty is who are looking after the tracheostomy. So ICU, ENT, MaxVax, yep. and so on. And the tracheostomy box includes a spare tracheostomy tube of the same size and a size smaller. Because as I mentioned before, sometimes trying to get the same size tube back in can be a bit tight. And so a smaller tube might, uh, might uh, be what's required. And then it also includes the spare inner cannulas because, um, you know, if the inner cannula falls out, 
um, and gets broken or lost or something like that, you need to have a spare in the cannula present. Um, the tracheostomy dilators um, should also be present, which are um, used to um, open up the stoma if a tracheostomy is removed and help uh, maintain the patency of the stoma. Um, suction catheters of an appropriate size for the tracheostomy tube. Um, a suction device should be present as part of the, the kit, so whether it's wall suction or portable suction. And, um, and they're, the, they're the key items that um, uh, you need to have available. And on that same point, do you, so people with long-term tracheostomies in the community, do they carry around like an information card or even um, anything with them? You know, presumably they wander around um, all throughout the community. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, so it sounds like we're talking, you know, obviously it's a high-risk situation being in hospital, but, um, you yeah. know, uh, you imagine someone collapsing on the train or in the cinema or something like that. Um, well, laryngectomy patients, um, probably worth a mention here now, so... The laryngectomy is a situation where the larynx is removed and the trachea is um, uh, uh, sewn to the front of the neck, so there's no connection uh, between the trachea and the mouth or nose anymore. And um, those kind of patients, um, unfortunately, um, have uh, keep keep coming up in coronial um, incidents where they have you know, a cardiac arrest and people do CPR, excellent CPR, and they bag, mask the face, but of course all they're doing is ventilating the stomach. Um, and if only they had known to ventilate the front of the neck. So those patients, I would hope, um, have a, a medical alert bracelet on them. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure there's a great system in the community. Yep. But we know that you know <clears> in hospital we're putting patients who are at increased risk, especially in our specialty because we're you know, sedating them and making them confused and... Um, you know, putting them in situations where they're more likely to have some misadventure with their airway. That's great. So I think that I think we've covered everything. We're not going to be able to sort of. Um, this isn't going to be the the most uh, comprehensive course, but it's really um, covered all the important issues. Where should people go to uh, learn more? Perhaps is it some of these things are best learned by visual. Yeah, either going to a course or uh, actually watching a video where you can see the equipment being uh, described and used. Um, yeah, so what are the best references? So um, oh, we'd be happy to have people come to our course at Fiona Stanley Hospital. Yep. We run a, um, a tracheostomy crisis management day with um, uh, doctors, nurses, allied health staff um, uh, involved in simulations and lectures and hands-on bits and pieces. So people are welcome to come to that. Um, we have got most of our um, uh, resources from the National Tracheostomy Safety Project in the UK. And that's um, tracheostomy.org.uk. Yep, I'll put um, a link to that on the um, on the show notes of this um, episode. They've yep. got some great um, great videos. Um, and they've got their own YouTube channel as well. And then um, we've also written some uh, an article for the uh, ANSCA Blue Book, as you mentioned, sort of giving a bit of an approach to um, tracheostomies um, in theatres. And so, how do um, listeners in Western Australia here who are keen to come to your course, um, who should they contact? Uh, they can contact me, okay. and I'll, I'll put them uh, put them in the right I'll, direction. I'll put um, your email address on the uh, on the show notes. Any final comments, James? That was very um, very good. So, no, uh, the only other thing that I did um, uh, write down was so the, so Stephen Hawking used to be the pinup boy for the tracheostomy.org.uk, didn't he? And um, uh, unfortunately, he's passed away just recently. Um, is there any other? Has anyone lined up to be the replacement pinup boy for the... No, I'm not sure. No, Roger, I think you have to uh, go trawling the wards with the state rehab um, uh, uh, service and see if you can find someone. So, so in all seriousness, though, he did a really good job for um, um, 
for that organisation, didn't he? Because he's so famous, um, and having someone like him on board, he uh, it helped them get some traction. Is that true? Yeah, look, I'm not sure if he was how much he was involved in that UK um, side of things. So the, the UK project came out of um, uh, after the NAP4 um, audit, okay. and that was um, sort of demonstrated all the complications that were occurring at a much higher rate than people had expected. And so I think that got spurred on from that. Um, there's always uh, pop culture, uh, uh, you know, we, we follow misadventures of uh, people in, uh, in popular culture and that can influence um, awareness of different topics for sure. But, yeah, I don't know how much, uh, how much input he had. I think he had bit, uh, more, uh, you know, other contributions to the, the world of science. And uh, so the only other, so I, I, I am digressing and dragging this podcast out longer than it should be, but the only other uh, celebrity who had an airway um, death was George Washington, wasn't it? Yes, so he well, had epiglottitis or some form of upper airway infection, which was treated with um, bloodletting. Yeah, so he, <laughs> so he's he he almost should be the poster boy for tracheostomies because he died because they wouldn't do a tracheostomy. That's right. Yeah, well, they, they tried to exsanguinate him with multiple bloodletting. Uh. Well, back in uh, back in George's day, um, it was something like a seventy-five percent chance of mortality with a tracheostomy. So. Um, his physician. There was apparently there was one physician who was advocating for a trachea, and the other remaining members of the uh, presidential physician team um, said, "No way, you can't do that. It's going to kill him." Um, but perhaps uh, if he had had a tracheostomy done uh, without misadventure, um, he may have um, survived yeah. a little longer. And then you know, um, five or six days of meropenem and yeah. uh, and the uh, the box and the laminated card above his bed, he might have made it. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, James, really interesting. Um, thanks for sharing your expertise, and you're doing a really good job, and uh, I'm going to try and sign up for one of your courses. Um, I couldn't come last year, but I am super keen to come. Fantastic. Thank Look you. to seeing you there. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by our listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.